0: Welcome to today's edition of the My Ag Life Daily News Report. I'm your host, Lori Boyer. In addition to feature reports, I'll bring you a look at regional and national agricultural news. And the show starts with a look at California agricultural news. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has announced that producers voted to amend the federal marketing order for almonds grown in California. The referendum was held October 30th to November 20th. To be accepted, the amendments had to be favored by two-thirds of the producers voting or by two-thirds of the volume represented. Following are the amendments voted on and the results for each. Amendment 1. Modifying the definitions for almonds and shelled almonds, adding a definition for almond biomass, changing the term control board to board, and replacing listed approved outlets for inedible kernels with the term accepted users. Favored by 86.61 percent of voting almond producers, representing 94.99 percent of the production volume voted in a referendum. Amendment 2 changing the date from December 31st to March 31st for determining handler-weighted votes in the nomination process for handler positions on the board. Favored by 85.63% of voting almond producers, they represented 94.28% of the production volume voted in a referendum. Amendment 3, changing from August 1st to September 1st, the date the board is required to submit volume regulation estimates and recommendations to the Secretary of Agriculture. It was favored by 86.61% of voting almond producers, representing 93.02% of the production volume voted in a referendum. Amendment 4, removing language that requires separate accounting of certain excess funds and sets a reserve fund limit at approximately six months' expenses instead of six months' budget. It was favored by 84.59% of voting almond producers, representing 80.65% of the production volume voted in the referendum. Amendment 5, adding authority for the board to accept advanced assessment from handlers or borrow funds from commercial lenders. It was favored by 63.59% of voting almond producers, representing 56.15% of the production volume voted in the referendum. Producers voting did not show sufficient levels of support for an amendment to add authority for the board to accept advanced assessment from handlers or borrow funds from commercial lenders. More information about the marketing order is available on the 981 California Almonds webpage and the AMS Marketing Orders Agreements webpage or by contacting the Market Development Division. Recently, about 1,400 third-graders from South Monterey County Schools attended the 2024 South County Farm Day to learn about agriculture and experience animals firsthand. The annual enrichment program, sponsored by Monterey County Agricultural Education, gives an opportunity for youth to become familiar with food production and farming. The January 25th event was held at the Salinas Valley Fairgrounds in King City. Among this year's South County Farm Day participants were deputies from the Monterey County Sheriff's Mounted Unit who shared with students about their role in helping keep the community safe in rural areas while on horseback. Other Farm Day participants included Monterey County Agricultural and Rural Life Museum, Monterey County Farm Bureau, and many local ag businesses. In a lawsuit filed recently, agriculture and business groups say two California state laws mandating climate disclosures violate the constitutional right to free speech and will lead to increased costs to businesses, including farmers and ranchers. California Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom, in October, signed into law Senate Bills 253 and 261, which compels thousands of businesses across the country and the world doing business in California to publicly state their opinions regarding the risks associated with climate change, to post those opinions on their website – and to disclose businesses' greenhouse gas emissions. The American Farm Bureau Federation and the Western Growers Association joined the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the California businesses in ag interests in filing the lawsuit in the U.S. District Court for the District of Central California. The legal action comes at a time when agriculture and business interests also have their eyes on what the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission will do with a similar controversial proposal to require publicly traded companies to report their GHG emissions which would also require farms and ranches to report emissions to publicly traded companies. The SEC is expected to decide on the future of the proposal this spring, as it has been delayed several times already. In the lawsuit filed, the farm groups outlined how the new California laws will affect farms and ranches. Both laws unconstitutionally compel speech in violation of the First Amendment and seek to regulate an area that is outside California's jurisdiction and subject to exclusive federal control by virtue of the Clean Air Act and the federalism principles embodied in the federal constitution that according to the lawsuit filed against the California Air Resources Board. These laws stand in conflict with existing federal law and the Constitution's delegation to Congress on the power to regulate interstate commerce. The court should enjoin the defendants from carrying out the state's plan, once again, according to the lawsuit. And the lawsuit is asking the court to prevent the state of California from enforcing the laws. The AEFBF is concerned about a requirement for businesses doing business in California to report so-called Scope 3 emissions, which include indirect upstream and downstream GHG emissions. The burden of estimating scope three emissions flows up and down the supply chain according to the lawsuit. Small businesses nationwide will incur significant costs monitoring and reporting emissions to suppliers and customers swept within the law's reach. For example, hundreds of family farm members of AFBF will need to report emissions to business partners that do business with entities covered by Senate Bill 253. The lawsuit illustrates how the laws affect individual farms and ranches. The law passed through Senate Bill 253 applies to businesses with revenues of at least $1 billion. Senate Bill 261 applies to businesses with revenues of at least $500 million. In signing statements from Newsom, he expressed concern about the costs and economic effect of implementing the bills. Newsom instructed California Air Resources to monitor those costs. Senate Bill 261 requires companies to post to their websites their opinions about their financial risks related to climate Climate, Senate Bill two hundred and fifty three requires emissions reporting. While AFBF's members will not be directly regulated by the challenge laws, its members will bear much of the burden according to the lawsuit. Nearly every farmer touches a value chain of those that will be directly regulated by the laws and thus will be caught up in those companies' efforts to report scope three emissions, incurring burdensome compliance costs regardless of their contracts with California. Moreover, some regulated companies may favor larger farms that can more easily supply the information to the detriment of smaller operations, leading to increased consolidation and integration, according to AFBF. Supplies of California citrus are plentiful right now. The fruit is so big, it's plentiful in large fruit and very tight limited supplies on small fruit, 88 and smaller. That according to Jim Savedra of Cecilia Packing Corporation. Right now in Citrus, the grower shipper is shipping navels heirloom navels, caracaras, blood oranges, and it will soon start Miniolis. According to Savedra, mostly the season was delayed, but then certain varieties pulled forward. Even though the season was delayed, they expected to end earlier this year because of the lack of fruit on the backside. There seems to be less fruit in the late navels in particular. While the company usually ends in May through June, the industry often goes longer into August or September. This season, Cecilia packing is anticipated to finish up sometime in April. Meanwhile, California has seen some sizable rains recently, which is delaying harvesting, so growers have been working to try to pick ahead of the rain. However, recent warmer temperatures could bring another set of hurdles with quality and fruit drop. A lot of negative things happen when you have this kind of moisture in 74 degrees, he said. As for demand, it's steady, though not as strong as last year on navels and caracaras particularly, though the split market between sizes is adding to that dynamic. If you have a lot of small fruit, you're probably pretty happy. If you have a lot of big fruit, you're not as happy, he says. However, the demand for blood oranges is steady and stronger. Not surprisingly, this is leaving pricing on small fruit stronger and large fruit softer, while blood orange pricing is stronger than last season. The Listeria outbreak linked to HMC Farms' peach, plum, and nectarines in seven states has concluded, as reported by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The outbreak resulted in 11 illnesses and one death in California. The peaches were also marketed under the Signature Farms brand. The breakdown of cases by state is as follows. In California, three. Colorado, one. Florida, three. Illinois, one. Kansas, one. Michigan, one. And Ohio, one. The affected individuals ranged in age from 30 to 80 years old, Illness onset dates span from August 22nd of 2018 to August 16th of 2023. All 10 individuals who provided information were hospitalized, one death was reported from California, and one person experienced preterm labor. Seven interviewees confirmed to public health officials that they had consumed peaches, nectarines, or plums prior to falling ill. Whole genome sequencing indicated that the bacteria from patient isolates were genetically similar, implying the patients were all sickened by the same food source. On October 23rd, the FDA collected a sample of HMC Farms' peaches for testing and detected listeria. Whole genome sequencing on November 6th revealed that the bacteria in the peaches were genetically similar to those found in all the ill individuals, suggesting the peaches were likely the source of the illnesses. A new outbreak of listeria infections is currently under investigation by federal officials. Although the source has not yet been identified, 26 patients have been found by investigators from the Food and Drug Administration. The FDA has not released details on the patient's locations or ages. The investigation is in its early stages, with traceback efforts, sampling, and on-site inspections yet to begin. The outbreak notice was first posted on January 24th.
1: At last week's North Valley Nut Conference in Chico, California, Trina executives addressed Northern California walnut and almond growers on all things regulatory and marketing. On the stage was Josette Lewis with Almond Board of California and Robert Verloop with the California Walnut Board. In a question and answer portion of the discussion with the audience, Verloop addressed market concerns around low prices, an outlook on those prices, and what the industry can expect in terms of a turnaround.
2: If we have an alternate bearing crop year this year, which, you know, if any of you, have experience in the industry. You, you've got the ups and downs and just alternate bearings, so it'd be nice if we got a lighter crop. I, I think we've got to take the pressure off of uh, the, the, the selling organizations that are just based on volume, and, uh, and I'll address that for a second, is that if I was a grower, and I have been a grower of, of permanent crops, citrus and avocados, I've also worked in the veg industry uh, as a grower and as a marketer, so here's a question that I think you should ask your handlers. What are you as a handler doing to grow consumption in the markets where you sell? What are you doing as a handler to add additional value to a commodity that's been commoditized for so long and it's not being that commodity pricing is the only thing that you're negotiating in? What are you doing value-added-wise? So whether it's in the product um, formulation, are you doing things to expand beyond just selling to another broker or to a, a trader? Do you have the sales force in place to sell to people that are looking for uh, our product, uh, but just wait until the price to drop? There's, there's a relationship building element that I, I think has been missing a lot because it's been so easy for so long. As a grower, if I was in your shoes, I'd start putting pressure on the handlers, asking them, what are you doing to help expand uh, consumption? Because we need to do that. The demand is there. We've, we've proven that in a couple of different ways over the last year and a half. The the problem is is that if the only thing you can negotiate on is price, guess who has the upper hand? And that's the buyers. And so I I think we need to improve the quality of our selling uh, process. It's hard to hear that. The handlers don't like hearing it, but we need to have that discussion. And so we're we're doing that uh, wholeheartedly. The other thing that I'll say is that there's a lot of interest right now um, in market expansion and uh, the, the current administration has, uh, has put $1.3 billion aside for a program called RAPP, R-A-P-P. I think it's Regional Agricultural Promotion Programs. And there's a real focus in the Southeast Asia, in North Africa, at least that's for where we're looking at it. We tomorrow, actually we're in the process right now of submitting a request for the next five years uh, for $30 million, uh, almost $36 million, in new promotional programs, because we can't rely on the markets that we've had to continue to take the volume that that we clearly are producing. So we need to expand in places like um, uh, Singapore, Malaysia, Taiwan, um, uh, even expanding in Japan and Korea, some of these funds are available there, India for sure, and some of these funds will be used there. Um, We're looking at North America with Morocco, Tangiers, uh, Egypt, Uh, even expanding in Turkey. And the UK has been a phenomenal producer. And to give you an example. When you put the resources behind it, uh, things happen. And we had a 60% increase in sales in the UK just because we got after it with retailers. So that's the variables that, that I think we need to do a better job of executing on. And if we get that right, then this three to five year window could be a little bit uh, shorter than what we're seeing right now.
1: One audience member addressed Verloop's ask of the processors and handlers, saying the industry should be doing even more than Verloop suggested in the realm of drafting letters to and in general being more upfront and direct. Verloop agreed growers need to be more engaged.
2: Obviously, I inherited a board of directors. We went out and tried to get more people to sign up, and we actually had. 10 new members or alternates now between the commission and the board. Um, But we need more of that. We need more help on the committees where a lot of decisions are also being made. Um, And I think that the message is you as growers, we as industry people, need to be much more engaged. And there was a a slide recently that I saw at an industry presentation that I think captures it all. We have to shift our mindset from being suppliers, whether it's growers to handlers and handlers to the industry, buying community to being partnerships, and I think, uh, you know, uh, whether it's a letter or sit down and have a heart-to-heart with handlers is figure out how you can be in partnership with them and hold them accountable to doing the best possible job for you, and the answer can't be, well, that's the market, right? It's, it's, It's much more complicated than that, and I'd be more than happy to talk to anybody if you want you know, inside information. But the other part we're doing is we're taking the same message to handlers. We're putting together what's called a handler university. I think you guys actually have done that also, where we're starting to talk more about all the research that we're finding and where the opportunities are. Because if all you do is sell to a broker or a trader, and that's your universe, then you're not looking at what's happening around. And so we're trying to bring that message along well. So match your, your questions around expanding sales at retail expanding it in food service and food manufacturing um, and take a look what's happening around us because there's a lot of other people that are doing it very successfully
1: another question came up about the retail issue with walnuts and other tree nuts noting part of the issue is retailers don't pass on producer pricing back to the processors and handlers when retailers don't adjust for lower producer pricing the industry doesn't benefit as it should from any increase in demand that is generated putting the pressure on retailers to adjust their margins will be key to this issue moving forward.
2: That in itself is like a two-hour discussion, is how do you get retailers to change their, their promotional practices? One of them is you've got to start calling on the retailer. As a seller, and I've done this, I started my career in, in merchandising and marketing with retailers, you start getting into their office, you sit across from the buyers, and you start explaining to them what your product is, how they will have an opportunity to make money on it, because the high margins actually doesn't create more funds for them. It, it just means that they can show a gross margin number on a smaller volume. And, and if you start to understand how retailers sell and how their budgets work and how their bonuses work, then you start to understand how to start marketing and promoting to them. One of the things that, there's a, a process called category management where we become the experts in our category, walnuts, and we actually develop a, a sales plan for a retailer. Costco, Walmart, they're, exceptional in doing those things because they understand what their consumers want. They understand the price points that are needed to be able to move more product. And here's the thing is that, and I, I know the almond industry has the same thing, when almonds or walnuts are in the market basket, what's the value of that market basket back to the retailer? And it's a whole lot more than other items that are sent of the store. So we need to take control of our own destiny and start promoting because you can't let these nut repackers Run the category, and that's what happens. Any of you shop at Raylie's? That's my biggest frustration point. You know, you're getting less than you know 50 cents a pound in Raylie's is consistently nine dollars a pound in a in a generic white clamshell, and the product sits there for six months. It turns rancid. It's an ugly color. It doesn't promote. We need to start taking control. And the, the way I used to do it with retailers, I said uh, it was an avocado example. I said we grew that avocado you're leasing it as a retailer it's ultimately my avocado until it gets to the consumer and we've got to think all the way through to the consumer and how do we streamline it and getting more promotions getting more footprints in in retail as she was saying uh, is important guess what it doesn't happen by itself it doesn't happen to get things on the menu at, re- at in food service by itself jim bean Uh, What is it, whiskey ribs at Applebee's? That didn't happen because the chef was drinking whiskey one day or bourbon. Uh, That's because Jim Beam went in there and promoted it and convinced them that that was important to do. And so my challenge to the handler industry in total, because there's some of them that are doing it quite well, is how to understand how to sell to retail. uh, And and, and the, the term that I use, sell through retail, not to retail. And, and figure out how do we get you know more walnuts in more uh, consumers' hands uh, more frequently at a higher price. It's that simple.
1: You're listening to My Ag Life. I'm Taylor Jahlstrom.
2: Sponsored by the California Walnut Board and Commission.
3: Supporting the industry with on-farm innovation through production research, advocacy for government programs, and driving consumer demand. Doing more together.
0: USA Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack weighed in on nourishment's role in healthy outcomes as part of a panel during the Department of Health and Human Services Food and Medicine Summit. USA Ag News reporter Rod Bain has the story.
1: Food is medicine the theme of a Health and Human Services Summit Wednesday. Among the subtopics discussed, the power and importance of nourishment.
2: At USDA, we're making a concerted effort to be sensitive to a variety of points of view when it comes to food. That's why the nutrition programs that we operate are really focused on trying to create healthier choices, trying to create those young children having that first opportunity to experience fruits and vegetables and healthy foods.
1: Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack among the panelists covering this subject at the event.
2: We're also, I think, sensitive to the... The need for us to adjust our programs so that they are culturally sensitive, that there are different needs and different diets and different food needs as a result.
1: The secretary adds the focus of food as medicine also provides an opportunity to shift the focus of ag production from quantity to diversity.
2: That recognizes that so many small and mid-sized producers need different sources of income and different streams of income in order to survive, in order to thrive.
1: I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
0: The Land Report research team issued a report detailing who are America's largest landowners. The Land Report 100 shows that as of 2021, America's largest landowner is named Red Emerson. He and his family own just over 2.4 million acres in California, Oregon, and Washington through their timber products company, which is called Sierra Pacific Industries. On the markets today, traders will pay close attention to American weather and news from the Middle East. With Congress back in session, many are waiting patiently to see if or what gets done with regards to a new farm bill that was given an extension in the last session. Tyson Redpath, principal with the Russell Group, says it won't be easy, but it is doable.
3: The biggest encumbrance right now are really two things. One, the math of the House of Representatives. With the retirement of Bill Johnson from Ohio, the House majority could potentially be down to 219 seats. To have the majority, you need 218 seats. So you, you have a margin of one. And then the other complicating factors is, is quite frankly, you know, the committees just haven't moved. The agriculture committees have not moved a bill. And, you know, I guess for what it's worth, I would encourage the committees to begin their work.
0: With the slimmest Republican majority on both sides playing politics, there is still a right way of doing things.
3: Farm bills have lived and survived the test of time because they've included the minority. They've been bipartisan and they've gone through a regular order committee process. I'd encourage the leadership of both committees to let's get that started again.
0: And the farm bill, Red Pout says, will not be cheap.
3: That too, I think, could be equal in its compound problem of why we haven't seen a farm bill yet. Yeah, I mean, the last Congressional Budget Office score pegged this farm bill, just a continuation of the existing farm bill, at $1.5 trillion over 10 years. So it is our history's first, our nation's first trillion-dollar farm bill.
0: But in the end, Redpath says he has faith. Do not
3: let perfect be the evil of the good. The committee process is there. It's there for a reason. It's there to consider, vet, debate, tweak. That's how farm bills get done. I still remain hopeful and, and still believe this grand experiment that is the United States and the United States Congress is the best
0: in the world. Redpath is hopeful that we see an example of the legislative process done the right way in regular order. When pesticide residues are found on foods, they are nearly always at levels below the tolerance or maximum amount of a pesticide allowed to remain in or on a food, which is set by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. This is the conclusion of the Pesticide Data Program's 32nd Annual Summary. More than 99% of the products sampled through PDP had residues below the established EPA tolerances. Ultimately, if EPA determines a pesticide use is not safe for human consumption, EPA will mitigate exposure to the pesticide through actions such as amending the pesticide label instructions, changing or revoking a pesticide residue tolerance, or not registering a new use, according to the report. The PDP tests a wide variety of domestic and imported foods with a strong focus on foods that are consumed by infants and children. EPA relies on PDP data to conduct dietary risk assessments and to review the maximum amount of a pesticide allowed to remain in or on a food. USA uses the data to better understand the relationship of pesticide residues with agricultural practices and to implement USA's integrated pest management objectives. USA also works with U.S. growers to improve agricultural practices and to facilitate the adoption of integrated pest management techniques, including judicious use to pesticides, through the food supply chain. For commodities like grapes and watermelon available from both domestic and imported sources, the residue profiles vary significantly. The comparison of selected residues and imported versus domestic grapes and tomatoes, where residues are present in over 5% of total samples, shows distinct differences. Despite differences in residue profiles, all pesticides detected in both domestic and imported commodities were within established tolerances in the United States. The variations in residue findings are attributed to differences in pest pressures, registered pesticides, and crop production practices between countries. The report emphasizes that although differences exist, the vast majority of domestic and imported samples did not exceed EPA-established tolerances. JCS Marketing is your number one way to connect with the ag industry. Through print magazines, digital media, podcast, and live and virtual events, JCS Marketing has the reach to inform, educate and influence growers in the western united states
2: everywhere you go you see west coast map magazine on the, every one of my customers tables so that tells you everything that's that it's there so they're reading
0: our my ag life platform includes podcast interviews and digital articles for busy professionals on the go Our live events, continuing education webinars, and virtual conferences help growers connect with leading researchers and industry leaders. Let JCS Marketing help you connect. That will wrap up today's show. You've been listening to the My Ag Life Daily News Report. I'm Lori Boyer. From all of us here at the JCS Marketing team, thank you for listening.